You're listening to a sermon from the series, The Kings and the King, Anticipation in the Books of Samuel. For more information and sermons, visit our website at firstfamily.church. Well, today we begin a brand new series in the Old Testament in which we will remain for about, you ready? Two years, two school years. I thought you might break out in applause at that. Hey, no, you should count your blessings. Did you know that the time period that these books cover is 460 years? I'm not going to preach to you that long about one thing, right? Now, we'll be in this new series called The Kings and the King. It's going to be a series through Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles, those six books, um, for about two school periods through the end of 2018. We're going to be looking how each of these points us to the ultimate king, our Lord and Savior, And so we begin that today, and I don't want to spend a lot of time today in overview and introductory material, Uh, because 1 Samuel 1 and 2 is just a a beautiful piece of narrative that we're going to learn much from. And so what we've done is we've put together a lot of the overview stuff, the introductory stuff, especially to Samuel. we put that together in a special podcast that's available. We released it Friday. Go to our website. website. You can listen to it there. You can download it. Um, By the way, I think... um, there were, were there two or three winners? Okay, there were only two winners from the podcast. In case you don't listen to those, sometimes we actually have contests on the podcast. We give away things. I'm not going to tell you how we do that. You need to figure it out by listening to it, right? Okay. But uh, go check the podcast out, listen to it. It'll give you a lot of background for this series called The Kings and the King. And we're looking at anticipation in the books of Samuel. Next year, we'll look at expectation in the books of the kings. And our goal, of course, is to see just how the Old Testament, in every single facet, in narrative and poetry, uh, in prophecy, it points to the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so today we begin that, and I invite you to take your Bible and locate 1 Samuel chapter 1, would you? As you do, hear this very well. That all of us, every single one of us, we live our life at the intersection of two streets. God's sovereignty and my situation. When I say my, I mean your situation. You personalize that. But whatever your situation is, is always intersecting with God's sovereignty. Now we don't constantly see it. Can we just agree to that? We often notice it when we're in pain when things don't go like we think they should. But I think uh, we should not dismiss too easily this fact that actually our situation and God's sovereignty is always intersecting. There is not a single second. Church, listen to me. There is not a single second of your life that isn't under the orchestration of the almighty hand of God. Not our country, no matter where you landed on the last election, or the one before that, or the one before that, or the one before that. Or, I mean, how many cycles do we have to say, this is the critical one? And I'm not diminishing politics, but can we just agree, God has always been in charge, amen? This isn't just the thing that happened last November no matter where you fall on that spectrum. It's true for our country that it's under God's authority. 
It's true for our church. Every single thing we've tried that has worked and every single thing we tried that didn't work, God was aware, in charge, in control. And it's true for your life. The things you've done well, the things you completely blew, the mistakes you made, the decisions you made that were great, God is in charge and over it. I think about some of those situations in our church. In fact, when I think about them, they always go on a spectrum. Maybe you're like this. You think of those who have things happen that just are unimaginable. In the first service, I just went from section to section, and in every section there was someone who had lost someone just unexpectedly. The Dunkersons were there at 8.30. They buried their eight-day-old son just a few weeks ago. I mean, you, you can't... You just be with people, and you walk with them. You hug them. You never can explain that. The days were sitting about right here. Their 20-year-old son killed in an ATV accident just a little while ago. Sarah Hensel was sitting right over there. Her husband murdered in Jamaica. You have the other end of the spectrum that, when you compare to that, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't seem that important, I know, but there's still that pain. There's still those situations that... You don't understand some of you in this room. I look back at my brother-in-law, and, and yesterday we were, we were laughing about it, and yet it's a, it's a situation that fits this, this topic. He moves here as a, with a doctor of education to be the principal at Ankeny Christian Academy, graduate of University of Tennessee, go Vols. Um, a little more support there, please. My goodness. I mean, come now, people, let us reason together. Man. I'm working, I'm working here, I'm telling you. Um, make a long story short, they're not gonna, the state of Iowa is not going to recognize his doctor's degree from another state institution. He's got his master's as well. So starting tomorrow morning, in order to make all this happen, and at some point the state of Iowa will recognize his degree from another state, he has to go to class tomorrow morning with freshmen and take physical science. Steve's what, 58? Something like that? 57, missed it by a year. So we were laughing yesterday about that. You know, like, I'm going to go. He's got to take uh, doctrines. He's going to go to Faith Baptist Bible College. And I think he's got to take eight or nine courses to finally have the accreditation at some level that says we will count this degree. And I don't understand it. He doesn't. I'm not trying to criticize the state. I'm just saying it's like beyond my, my grade of, of wisdom. But he just said, you know what? It is what it is. I'll accept it. And so tomorrow he enrolls in an undergraduate program as a doctor. That's kind of odd, you know? So you have those, this whole spectrum of things. All of us have a situation or situations where we're like, man, what is going on? Well, here's one thing for sure going on. It is intersecting and it has intersected with God's sovereignty. Nothing is outside of his control, all right? And this was true for Hannah. 1 Samuel chapter 1 and chapter 2. And what we'll see today from her narrative, from her story, is that God's sovereignty and my situation are continuously connected. In fact, this is our take-home truth. I'll just go ahead and give it to you up front. I'll have you read it with me. Here's where we're headed today. I'll show it to you on the front end. Can we? Let's read together. God's sovereignty and my situation are continuously connected, and a posture of trust in God is necessary in my life's journey under His authority. 
All right? Often we, we like this fact when things go our way. And in Hannah's case, at one point, it, it did go well. But not every case goes well on the surface or immediately. This is why a posture of trust in God is necessary. And we're going to see this from Hannah's life. So, let's read 1 Samuel 1 and 2 and make a few comments. I, I want to say on the outset that, that this narrative we're going to see, historically it's about a, a woman and her, her, her issue with infertility. I realize that. But theologically, it's about something wider and deeper. I'm not minimizing infertility. I'm not trying to ignore or avoid the issues that go along with that. But I do want to be an honest, transparent teacher with you. This is not a chapter about how to get pregnant. It's a chapter about how to have faith in God. When things don't go like you think they ought to go. And when possibly they do. You see, theologically, this teaches us something about God. And that's really what I want you to get on this very first week. I want you to understand something about narrative, Old Testament narrative. The Old Testament isn't written so we'd have a collection of good stories. It's written as a collection of stories to teach us about our God. And about what he's doing historically and redemptively for his people. Does that make sense? So the narrative isn't meant to like, oh, let's learn about fertility or infertility. And I'm not making light. I'm not trying to dismiss it. But this is not a message on how to get pregnant. This will be a message on how to posture our life under God's authority. Yes, when that situation is like Hannah's, but when it's also a situation unlike Hannah's and yet similar in principle. So let's read 1 Samuel chapter 1 and 2. I'll show you the intersection of these chapters. We'll walk through maybe what her situation was like. We'll look at the prayer she prays. Incidentally, 1 Samuel chapter 1 is her situation. It's the horizontal aspect of the narrative. 1 Samuel 2 is God's sovereignty. And so we've circled in red kind of where these two intersect. 1 Samuel 1 and 1 Samuel 2, they intersect. You could almost say at times they crash, they collide. But this is always the case. It was true for Hannah. It's been true ever since. It's true for us. It was true before her. God is always intersecting with our life. Let's read how it happened for Hannah. For Samuel 1, Now there was a certain man of Ramathim Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jehoam, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth, and Ephratite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. And if you're wondering what her situation is, in a nutshell, there it is. Four words that conclude verse 2. You ought to circle those words. And somewhere in the margin at the top of this uh, chapter, just write the words, her situation, and draw a line to those four words. That's what I've done in my Bible. What is her situation? We'll describe it as the chapter unfolds. But in a nutshell, she had no children, which may... By the way, and this is just a cultural thing that I don't have time to explain in depth, but it may explain why Elkanah had two wives. Bearing children and having sons was a paramount issue. And perhaps Hannah not being able to conceive, 
He didn't feel it was important and necessary to bring an heir. And just giving you some cultural understanding of, that may be existing. I'm not saying it's right or that it was uh, God's will. I'm saying it happened and it's recorded in Scripture. This man Elkanah used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests to the Lord. Yes, interesting, isn't it? Here's the priests for the Israelites who had sons who were named after Egyptians. <laughs> well, Egyptian names at least. Kind of odd, isn't it? We're going to share more next week and the following week, but there's a lot going on here behind the scenes in Eli's life that I think we'll talk about when it comes to corrupt leadership. But you can just get a picture into what's in Eli's heart just by how he named his sons, you know. Well, they were priests of the Lord, and on the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. And to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. Underline that phrase, would you? You'll see it again in verse 6. Her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her. So Penina wasn't exactly the, the best of friends or irritate Hannah because the Lord had closed her room. Twice we see in this passage that the Lord is the one who closed her room. So understand some things, church. As hard as this may be to hear and as difficult as it is to process, and I'm not saying this glibly, but I just want to be honest with you. This situation here was one that was public. It was one that was um, painful, but it was one that was purposeful. In fact, can I be this bold before you this morning? That her inability to conceive was not an accident. The Lord closed her womb. Now, figuring out why and all those things is another whole conversation. But I just want to make sure we're clear that our situations, God is overseeing them. He's in control. He's not caught off guard. And in this case, we see that it's clear. He closed her womb. And so this went on year by year. Not only her closed womb, but the irritation from Panina. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Her situation here is also perpetual. This is going on year after year. Notice how the pain of her situation is highlighted beginning of verse 9. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now remember, this is after they did the ceremonial sacrifices. They kind of were done with the official corporate church service, we'll call it, all right? She's now going to spend some personal time in the tabernacle. And Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. And she was deeply distressed. And she prayed to the Lord and she wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and she said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. Here we see that her pain, which was public and perpetual, is now also very personal. So personal, that watch this, it changed her posture in the tabernacle she went from more of a ceremonial type of official gathering for sacrifices to where it's now personal. And 
She's weeping bitterly. She's deeply distressed. And it also motivated her to make a promise that if she were to have a son, she would give him back to the Lord in a physical way, having him live at the temple or the tabernacle, serve the Lord. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved. Her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. So her situation here is also misinterpreted. Eli says to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. Eli just had a problem really with, with discernment, didn't he? You could see it in his family. You could see it now in his, in his ministry. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. Circle the words troubled in spirit. Now watch this. Follow me quickly, would you? Circle troubled in spirit. Also circle in verse 10, deeply distressed. Circle the phrase affliction. And then in verse 17, circle great anxiety and vexation. Those are three ways that Hannah's pain is described in this chapter. Troubled in spirit, great anxiety and vexation, affliction and deeply distressed. If you think that this was just a... You know, a a simple thing Hannah's dealing with, not at all. It had been going on year after year in a public way, a very painful way. And she's now describing this to the priest and saying, man, this is some deep down distress. I haven't drunk neither wine nor strong drink. I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. I've been praying. I've been weeping. So don't regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. So Eli hears this finally, and he says, well, go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And then she says to him, let your servant find favor in your eyes. There's an exchange in the community of God there. And the woman went her way and ate. Now watch this starkly intriguing phrase, church. Her face was no longer sad. So I'm going to take the text for what it says. That even though year after year they would go and worship, in the middle of perpetual irritation by Panina, Hannah was under constant distress. It wasn't until at this point that for some reason she experienced the peace of her situation. Now I don't know precisely why, but let me give you what I think is our best textual answer. Here's what it can't be. Listen, church, listen very carefully. It can't be because she received some promise that she'd have a son. The text doesn't say that. We may be inclined at times to say, well, I think she may have been told something. The text only records that there was some, something about God's presence. And now watch this, and I'm going to go a step further here. In the company of of the community of God. I think there's an incredible amount of, I'll use the word power, when, when God's people gather and are honest before him, they pour their heart up to him and they agree with each other. They're, they're, they're realizing what's happening. Something occurs in that moment where the peace of God comes to the people of God in a way that perhaps has not been known before. And I think it's very intriguing that in this text, this is the point at which the writer wants to tell us, now her face is no longer sad. There's been no guarantee of a reversal. There's been no promise yet of a son. There's just been the presence of God and the power of the community of God gathered together, which says to me something. 
in our situations that are like Hannah's. Maybe yours is just like Hannah's infertility. Or maybe it's one like hers. It's, it's just kind of out of your control. It's not the guarantee of a reversal that brings us peace. It's the presence of God in the middle of that that actually brings us peace. And then the circling of people around us from God's, God's community that says, even though I don't understand or get this, I will posture myself in a position of trust and faith under God's authority. I think that's the best way to see that phrase tucked where it is in this passage. Because then it says, verse 19, they arose in the morning, they worshiped before the Lord, they went back to their house at Ramah. Elkanah knew Hannah and his wife, which means they had sexual relationships, and the Lord remembered her. This is the word used back in her prayer. See that? Verse 11, run in there. It does not mean that God forgot and then, oh, I forgot, yeah, I got to do that. I got to do that for Hannah. Let me get on that. We may want to refer to this as an anthropomorphism. It's a word used to describe God in terms of understanding. And really what it means is that God took action. It was now time to move on this. So from Hannah's perspective, it's like, man, God, you're late. Could we please get on with the program, so to speak? But God wasn't late, nor was he early. He was right on time based on his overall purposes. Does that make sense? What he's accomplishing, which was bigger than just Hannah and Elkanah. But the writer here uses the word remember as to to help us understand that now God was acting. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. So this situation, yes, it was public and painful. It was purposeful. It was personal. It was misinterpreted. It eventually brought her peace. Just remember this too. It was not permanent and it was, and I use this phrase intentionally, it was productive. In other words, it brought Hannah to a place where God did something in her life. What did he do? He caused her to remember the promise she made and give her son to the Lord and his service. This is what 21 through 28 talk about. Look what it says. The man elk in his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice. They're going back now like they've always done. But this time Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. That was the promise she made back in verse 11. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. And so the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, and ephah, a flower, a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. The child was young, and there they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. This is quite an irony here. She said, oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. That's code for, hey, Eli, I was the woman you thought was drunk. But no, I was praying. And this is probably two to three years after that encounter. I was the one praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I've lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord there. What a beautiful picture of reversal, but even what a more beautiful picture, watch this, of someone's posture before God, of trust and faith, even before they knew that God was going to reverse the situation. 
I think that's really what this chapter of that situation is driving at. That is our posture before God that is of utmost importance. Not the result, but the posture. Maybe you have felt like this, vulnerable and hopeless. Maybe the situation you're thinking of right now has these similar traits. It seems very public. It seems perpetual. It seems painful. It's very personal. In a nutshell, we would say this, that when things like that happen to us, what we feel is this, like, man, this is out of my control. It's a very vulnerable place to be, isn't it? When there's nothing you can do. You can't make a call, talk to somebody, write a check, make an appointment. There is nothing you can do. It's out of your control. This was Hannah. In moments like that, though, our posture should be, it's under God's control. And notice how she relays that to us in her prayer. In Hannah's case, God did reverse her situation. And so her prayer has this tone, but it also is, comes, it comes out of a posture of, of praise. It's not just about the reversal. It's really about this posture of, God's, of praise to God's character. In fact, you'll notice in this prayer a couple of things, more than a couple actually, You'll notice that she describes God as being all-powerful in verse 1, 4, and 5, as being all-holy in verse 2, as being all-knowing in verse 3, all-sovereign and authoritative in 6 through 8, and all-faithful in 9 through 10. Let's read this together. Here's what Hannah prays and says, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. Here's the all-powerful God delivering his people. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. And so God knows where you are and what's going on, even when maybe others misinterpret you, or when you're not even sure yourself what's happening. He's a God who is all-knowing. He's all-holy. He's all-powerful. Verse 4 says that the bows of the mighty are broken, the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread. Those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren is born seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. Here again, uh, God's ability to be all-knowing, to act on behalf of his people. But watch this. In verse 6, I think we have the answer to this question. Well, what if God doesn't act on my behalf? What about the one who doesn't get their situation reversed? What about them? I think Hannah would have prayed this and said this had she never conceived, by the way. Notice what, how she describes the Lord who closed her womb. She says, the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. You see, God owns the all-sovereign authority to do whatever pleases him. And it can't be anything but good and loving because God is all-loving and all-good. So if in his 
larger picture, if in accomplishing His plan, our role may be to have it reversed or not be reversed, our situation, it does not change who God is. He is the all-sovereign, all-authoritative, all-powerful, all-holy, all-knowing God of the universe who will do as He pleases. Our responsibility is to posture underneath that in trust and faith. Notice his last character trait. He's known as the all-faithful one. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. And here's here's the phrase that I think is the pinnacle of these two chapters. He will give strength to his king... And exalt the horn of his anointed. This is Hannah's prayer. But wait a second, Todd. Hannah didn't give birth to a king. She didn't bring forth an anointed one. Which, by the way, is the first mention of the word Messiah in the Old Testament. So what's going on, Todd? Even in her situation, God used it to prophesy and predict the coming, not only of David their king, but of the one of whom David is a type, Christ. You see, can we just kind of be real real transparent here about something? Hannah's situation was about something bigger than Hannah. And so there was a time in which she wasn't pregnant because God was waiting until the right time to bring about the prophet and priest who would anoint the king. But even in that, her situation would speak to the future king. You see, let's understand something, church. Listen very carefully. Your situation, and I hope this is honoring to you and yet humble before you, your situation that God is intersecting with, that your situation, which is sovereignty, is colliding with, it's about far more than just your situation. God is doing what God does. He rules from on heaven. And he's accomplishing his purposes. And so he does what is necessary to accomplish that, his purposes. And where that includes you and me, hallelujah, that's great, in both the good and the bad. But there is more going on than just you and me. Are you with me? God's accomplishing an eternal perspective here. He's he's up to something great to bring every. Uh, nation, language, tribe, and tongue around his throne. This was part of that historical redemptive plan to bring about the Messiah. And it had to start with Israel getting a king, and that had to start with Israel having a prophet who would anoint that king. It had to be about the right time when Israel was in a terrible place spiritually, and every man was doing what was right in his own eyes, and this word of the Lord was rare in those days. And so the Lord had Hannah and Elkanah not be able to conceive until just the right time so in the larger scheme of things he could bring forth a prophet who would anoint a king who would point to the real king. It's always about more than just us. You see, this is what I want you to understand from the situation. It was out of her control, but understand this from God's sovereignty. It was under his control. You'll find that that is always consistently true. There is no situation 
outside of God's control. Let me repeat that to you. There is no situation in your life outside of God's control. Which means, church, listen, none of you are here by accident. None of you. God wanted you here this morning to hear exactly this, that your life is under the authority of Almighty God. He knows. He cares. He's holy and powerful. He's aware and he is intersecting and he has intersected your life at levels you cannot even comprehend today. There are no accidents with God. He's fully sovereign in every one of your situations. That's why Hannah could leave no longer sad. And that's why we too today, even with your situation being what it is, painful, perhaps public, perpetual, personal, all of those things that were like First Timothy 1, it's why you today can still rejoice and take a posture of faith because you know that the all-knowing, all-holy, all-faithful, all-sovereign, all-powerful God is right in the middle of every single one of your situations. And so we see again what we saw at the beginning. Would you read it one more time with me? Just to kind of echo what we're learning in this narrative, which again, is not about how to get pregnant. It's not about fertility or infertility. It's not about husband-wife relationships. Are there things to learn in this through that? Possibly. This is really though a, a pointing narrative to the, to the power and faithfulness of God in our situations and to draw us to posture ourselves underneath His sovereignty. And so we say together, would you read with me, church? God's sovereignty and my situation are continuously connected and a posture of trust in God is necessary in my life's journey under his authority. This is the only way you'll make it through the roller coaster of life, the ups and downs, the good and the bad, is to posture yourself under his authority in a position of trust and faith that he will act in accordance with his character and do what is best, period. That's Hannah's narrative. I suspect in your head you've been thinking through your own narrative, though they're centuries apart. Here's one that we can relate to that's just days old. It's going on right now, in fact. Let me show you a picture. This is Susan Vole. She's a member at First Family, attends our Bondurant campus. The picture on your left is her probably more recently. The one on her right, I think, is maybe not long after or perhaps just before she had heart transplant surgery Monday. Here's her story. They attended church Sunday, got a call from the doctor that they found a a gently used heart that may be a match, get down to Scottsdale. They flew out last Sunday. She was in surgery Monday morning, and sometime Tuesday or Wednesday, Jeff calls and says, my wife has a new heart. It took the old one that wasn't working, transplanted a new heart, and there's the, he told me yesterday, there's still the typical things happening, the body's attacking the heart, there's some things happening, but he said it doesn't look like it's going to be a problem. We're, we're looking really hopeful. Now here's what's interesting. He was talking yesterday, he said, it's been four and a half years since they found out her heart was not working. And so she wore this backpack contraption and it was somehow connected to her heart and it kept it beating. I mean, for 
one year and two years. Every time you see Susan, you'd think, what's in the backpack? You're like, she's just going somewhere. But that was her life support system. Until finally this week when she was able to take that off and they put a new heart in her. I said, Jeff, I said, Jeff, do you ever wonder, like, that's a long time, isn't it? Four and a half years. Like, hey, well, why couldn't God bring that heart along in the first week? And hey, what about those who didn't get a new heart? I mean, and those questions are beyond my pay grade, all right? I don't have answers to those. All I can do is say, okay, here's your situation. Four and a half years, needing a heart, not yet, and suddenly one comes and it seems to be a good match. And Jeff said to me a, a most intriguing thing. He said, Todd, he said, I don't know the answer to the question, but maybe it's because th- there were two people who needed to be saved. I said, what do you mean? He said, because in the waiting room, while she's in surgery and then while she's recovering, I met this family and their, uh, their son and their uncle, he was in uh, for cancer and not doing well, and he's probably not going to live. In the course of the conversation, I just shared my faith. And, you know, you get, you get close in the waiting room. Can we just agree to that? People share like they don't other places. He said by the end of that conversation, uh, Kenny, who's the individual who was with the cancer and probably not going to make it, his mother came to Christ and his nephew Jeff said, I had a chance to pray with them, and they trusted Christ as their Savior. He said, I don't know, Todd, if this is true. I have no verse for this. But maybe God wanted my wife to live with that backpack for four and a half years because he knew we need to be here to see these people get saved. I don't know, but what is that? That's a posture of trust underneath God's sovereign authority. Amen? My mind, I don't know how to answer for those who don't get the heart transplant. Those who don't see infertility turn into fertility. I don't know what to say or how to answer that. We have folks in our church in that boat. I've been praying all week, God, give me grace and kindness just to be able to kind of navigate these waters, you know. I'm not trying to dismiss that, but neither do I want to make that the point of the passage. I think the point of this passage is, is that Hannah found peace and the and the ability to live in God's presence even before she had the guarantee of a child. Somewhere in there we find the real answer to dealing with our situation under God's sovereignty. That it's not necessarily the result that we're after. It's the presence of God. And so we take a posture underneath Him. And regardless of where your situation falls on the spectrum, whether it's one that's almost impossible to talk about, or maybe it's one that's kind of humorous at times. They are personal. They're painful. All of us deal with those. And no one one here bats a thousand on those. All of us have situations that are out of your control that, that just didn't work. What do you do with that? You bring that before the Lord. And in a posture of faith and trust, you say, you are in control of what is totally out of my control and we leave it with him. Before I make a few last observations, let me see if there are any questions that came in. I know we had some really good ones in the first service. Here's one that has come in. And I think on these questions, don't be surprised if I don't say I don't know to all of them because this is a deep subject. We're in waters that all of us aren't sure how to navigate sometimes. Can we just be honest on that? God's sovereignty and our situations, this is, um, it's rich, but it's deep. We don't quite get it. So I might just turn all these over to 
Steve Christensen, our church planter, you know, let him get used to him. I don't know what we'll do on that. Is it okay to be mad at God because of my circumstances? The answer to that would be no. I'll tell you why I would say that. I don't think that the word mad, that's not a word that I would say would be in our biblical vocabulary because it seems to indicate blame. You know? However, is it normal to sometimes doubt his love for me during a trial? I do think that faith and doubt can coexist for a time. Do you know that? Because the man in the New Testament came to Jesus and he said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. I love that, don't you? Like, God, I'm going to take this posture. I believe you are who you say you are. But right now, I don't get anything happening on this level, so I'm just going to throw myself at your mercy and trust you, but I don't quite get it. So there's this element of doubt that can coexist with faith faith for a time. But if that turns to blaming God or being mad at God, assuming he's the problem, then I think we have sinned and we have violated what James says when he says, don't accuse God of wrongdoing. So I would say, no, you can't be mad at God. But can we have honest authentic conversation with God about our pain and the things we don't understand by all means. By the way, God already knows what you think you're hiding from Him anyway. So you pray the nice churchy prayer, you know, kind of looking like, well, I'll just, I'll just get through it, fake it till I make it. God's like, hey, I, I know what you're faking. <laughs> so I, I say this to you, just relax and bear your soul. Like Hannah said here, I'm pouring out my soul. Man, just bear your soul to God without blaming Him. His love is strong enough. His arms are wide enough. His reach is far enough to handle every bit of your situation. Next question. In a book about Israel's leaders, do you think the reason the author talks about Hannah for a chapter and a half is to compare her character with Samuel, Saul, and David? Possibly. I think there could be multiple reasons that the narrative flows in this way. Yes, I think that would be a, a legitimate reason. Uh, the first few chapters are a, a section of contrast between Eli and Samuel. Um, so we, we see some of that happening already. I also think that one of the reasons the author writes in this way is to show that God uses things that men think can't be used. If you need proof of that, just read 1 Corinthians 1, in which Paul affirms that God has not chosen the mighty, the noble, He's chosen the weak things of the world. And what did God use to bring about the prophet who would anoint the king, who would be the type of the ultimate king? What did God use to say, I can work through anything to accomplish my purposes? He used a barren woman being ridiculed in a polygamous situation. Quickly, before we close, I need to give you a few signposts that I think we can post at this intersection, okay? And I will do these quickly. If you need to snap a picture of them, do so. Perhaps we'll make a graphic of these and get them to you throughout the week. But I jotted down some, some road signs that if I could, I would put these at the intersection of every one of your lives where, where God's sovereignty and your situations are colliding. It's a good collision, amen? It's always going on. But sometimes we're, we need some reminders of what's happening in these moments. When the first Samuel 1 and the first Samuel 2 meet. So here's some signs that I, I think would help us. First of all, God's timing is everything. We think ours is of ultimate importance, don't we? And, and I'm guilty of this, more so than probably anybody. I, our schedule, our time frame. But you know whose timetable really matters? 
gods. And I do think that as you read the narrative of Ruth and Judges, you find that God positioned this family at just this unique time in Israel's history when there was rarely a word from the Lord, when every man did what was right in his own eyes and there was no king, the last verse of Judges, to say, you know what, I'm going to have a family who every year will go and worship, who will follow me faithfully in the midst of great trial. They're going to continue to worship me and I'm going to use them in Israel's dark hour to bring about the birth of the prophet who will anoint the king. God's timing is everything. Second road sign I'd put at this intersection. Great trust honors God. Notice I didn't say that great results honor God. I'm not against results. I'm not against reversals. We're for victories like that. But what truly honors God is faithfulness and trust. And you may say, well, Todd, what is great trust? In this chapter, I think we'd be clear in saying this, that based on those verses, that it's, it's, the, it's a complete dependence without the guarantee of your concrete result. This is what Hannah experienced. She worshiped, she sacrificed, she promised, and then she said, I'm leaving not sad, without any guarantee that God would honor that. So I just would encourage you, great trust honors God. I'd put that sign at the intersection. Here's another sign I'd put at the intersection. Trust is a process that demands authentic prayer. In fact, you will grow in your trust, now watch this church, to the degree that you are honest with God. And to the degree that you pretend to be pretending before God. Because no one can pretend before God, by the way. We just think we are. <laughs> to the degree that you're pretending to pretend before God, you will lack any growth in trusting Him. God is not afraid of your questions. He's fully aware of your situation. Do you remember Job? Job had a very honest conversation with God without blaming him or accusing him. And I would encourage you, if you are in a situation where God's sovereign is intersecting it in a way that's just kind of throwing you for a loop right now, get in your closet and pour out your soul to God. Don't blame or accuse, but don't hide or pretend. You'll find that in that moment of authenticity, God will be very real and present to you. And you will begin to grow in your level of trusting your sovereign, authoritative creator. Another sign that I put at this intersection, that obedience shows trust. Let's not forget, this always bears repeating, faith is a verb. And so when Hannah got up from praying authentically before God, she made a vow. And so I think as we learn to trust, we will also then learn to obey. Kind of like an old song. Anybody here know that song? Trust and obey. Yeah, you got it. We'll sing it later. But good song, amen. I'd put this sign too there, by the way. Next one there, Ryan. Thanks, buddy. Since our situations and God's sovereignty are always intersecting, the issue is our awareness, not God's absence. Often at these intersections, we think, man, where did God go? He didn't go anywhere. He's at work, present. But perhaps our eyes at times don't see it. In fact, can I just give you three ways to be more aware of God's sovereignty? Just a little hint for you here. I think these three help me a lot. I'll, maybe they'll help you. Express gratitude. Thankfulness opens up your eyes like few things I know. So express gratitude. Listen to trusted others. And by that I mean those who can bring some other perspective. 
Ask hard questions like, hey, am I missing something here? Hey, talk to me here. And if you trust them and they trust you and there's good love, ask for their perspective. And then the third thing is uh, look for what didn't happen. Sometimes we're so focused on what happened, we forget what didn't happen. My dad used to say to me this a lot. He'd say, you know, Todd, God has blessed us in more ways by what he didn't allow to happen than what he did bring our way. I never got that at first. Like, Dad, I like the check in the mail. I want the million dollar lottery. Can we bring some of the what to happen to the home, you know? And we'd laugh. But he'd say, you know, God's probably shielded and protected us in ways that we'll never know. And let's count those as blessings. So I think one of the ways to be aware of God's sovereignty and a better way is just to express gratitude, talk to others who you trust, and consider what didn't happen. One more sign I'd put at this intersection. A posture of trust shouts praise to God's character and shores up the banks of contentment in my life. You see, all of us have a testimony. But do you know when your testimony screams the loudest? When you trust God in a difficult situation. Other times, it simply speaks. But when you remain humble under God's sovereignty and authority, when it's not easy, your testimony shouts. Like, man, what a God that He would undergird you and strengthen you and protect you when you should probably want to feel like you should turn on Him. No, no. God is, He doesn't do evil. He doesn't do wickedness. It's apart from His character. He's only good, only loving, only powerful, only faithful. So whatever's going on, though I don't get it, I'm under it, and I'll trust Him. That testimony shouts. And some of you, you need a testimony that shouts. You're great when things are going good, but that just speaks. You need one that shouts. And so... Come under God's character and let your testimony shout all the ways God is good even when it's not as clear as at other times. And you'll find that your contentment will grow. Your trust will grow. As that testimony shouts, what I pray will do is it will point to the one who did this better than Hannah and better than us, Jesus that the point of the prophetic prayer in 2.10, that God will give strength to his king, exalt the horn of his anointed, that your life will do what her prayer did. It will somehow throw light upon the real reason we can all come under God's authorities. Because Jesus did. And in his most trying hour, what did Jesus do? Did he turn on God when he said, Why have you forsaken me? Did he come off the cross? No. He remained faithful to the end. Hebrews says he obeyed perfectly and by doing so brought many sons to glory. Jesus shouts in his endurance. I'm praying that all of us will have a testimony that does exactly that and glorify God's character and the work of Christ on our behalf in just such a moment.